In February of 2015, a California man was found semi-conscious, surrounded by pools of spilled chemicals. The chemicals appeared to be bubbling, and a greenish-yellow vapor was being emitted from them. The man had severe burns on his face and back. His eyes were red and irritated. Emergency medical responders were contacted, and when they arrived, the man was struggling to breathe. He was brought to an emergency department and found to have severe chemical burns in his lungs. Later that day, he passed away from his injuries. What kind of compound could cause such devastating injury by only being exposed to the vapors? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a podcast about poisons from the people who treat poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And with me as always, my lovely robot co-host, Toxo. Hello everyone, it's me, Toxo. It's great to see you again, Toxo. Ryan, we live in the same laboratory, you can always see me. There is nothing different now than five minutes ago, except that we are recording the podcast. It's just a formality, Toxo, play along. I do not understand. Initiating subject change protocol. Wow, great weather today. What are we discussing on the show today, Ryan? So today, we're talking about a topic that's both timely and timeless. The clip from the beginning of the episode was taken from a newspaper article. I was not involved in this case in any way, and I offer my deepest condolences to anyone that was affected by that tragedy. This is a good time to clarify, actually. While this show might be silly sometimes, the death or tragedy that people experience due to the effects of poisoning is not, which is why it's important that we learn from these tragedies to prevent future morbidity and mortality. See, when I say the words chlorine gas, it might drum up images of World War I or soldiers in the trenches. It probably doesn't make you think household cleaners. This was just one example. It could have easily been other recent news stories, like the tragic passing of a Buffalo Wild Wings manager in November of 2019, when bleach was accidentally mixed with spilled acid cleaner on the floor and made chlorine gas. Or the man who unfortunately passed away in 2018 in Illinois after mixing cleaners. Or the countless cases that don't wind up in the news. And unfortunately, mixing cleaners is not the only way that chlorine gas exposures occur like the Graniteville, South Carolina train wreck that caused a massive chlorine gas spill, taking nine lives, the thousands of soldiers who fell victim during World War I, or the women and children who were tragically targeted with this noxious substance as recently as 2017 in Syria. Each event a tragedy in their own regard, and ones we should not forget the lessons from. Unfortunately, we don't have time to tackle every topic, like preventing industrial accidents or the ethics of chemical warfare. So today, we're going to focus on dangerous war gases made from household cleaners and how you can prevent making them in your own home. In all the panic surrounding the coronavirus, there's a lot of information going around the internet about mixing cleaners and even drinking bleach to prevent coronavirus infection. 
This is actually so common that a radio station reached out to our local poison center to get more information on it. And I figure if they wanted to hear about it, a lot of other people probably do too. Let's just set the record straight right now before we dive in. If you had any questions about it, mixing cleaners does not make them more effective, and drinking bleach will not prevent coronavirus. So what do we mean by household cleaners? We classify them into disinfectants, which are things we use to clean inanimate objects. These are things like bleach. And then we have antiseptics, things we can use to clean contaminated living things, like your hands. These are products like hand sanitizer or soap and water. For today's episode, we'll be focusing on what happens when you mix bleach with other things like chemicals or humans. Bleaching actually refers to the ability to whiten something. That's why you hear the term chlorine bleach, because there are other compounds like hydrogen peroxide bleaches that have also been used. See, prior to the 1700s, cloth and fabric was whitened in bleach fields. These giant open fields where cloth would lay out for months at a time to be whitened by the bleaching power of the sun. Yes, just like how your friend Stacy gets that gorgeous sun-bleached hair by the end of summer. This all changed in 1785 when a French chemist named Claude Berthelet realized that chlorinated compounds could be used to whiten fabrics. See, chlorine loves electrons. It's what we call an oxidizer. And it will steal electrons from anything, including compounds in fabric that absorb all the different wavelengths of light. When those are damaged, all the different wavelengths of light get reflected back at us, and when we see all the wavelengths together, it makes the color white. So Claude Berthelet figures out that he could take this very toxic compound called chlorine gas and run it through some water, and it would react to create a mix of hydrochloric acid and hypochlorous acid. But it could also go back the other way. The acids could turn back into the gas and leak out of the water and cause damage. So in order to trap the hydrochloric and hypochlorous acid in solution, he needed to make it more basic. Brian, do you mean basic like Uggs, North Face, and Starbucks? No, Toxo, not Uggs and Starbucks basic. Basic like acids and bases, something that'll absorb the hydrogen ion that the acid donates. So he added a base, sodium hydroxide, to neutralize the acid, and this trapped the acid as a salt called sodium hypochlorite, or bleach as we know it today. So you can see, if you simply add an acid back in to neutralize the base that is trapping the chlorine gas in the water, you release all that toxic chlorine gas back into the environment. So Berthelet began selling this liquid filled with chlorine gas trapped in its soluble form Uh, as bleach, or as it was called in that time, javel water. Or maybe javel water? That's probably how it's actually pronounced. It was named after the district in Paris, javel, or javel, that was producing it. But I really like the name javel water. I think we should all go back to that. This bleach or javel water was actually being sold as a whitener. It wasn't until 1820 that bleach was found to have antimicrobial or disinfectant properties. So in the 19th century, strings for musical instruments were actually made out of animal intestines in these horrifying places called gut factories. Yeah, it was described as an odiferous and unhealthy process, probably to no one's surprise. 
So in order to make it more tolerable, a French industrial organization put out a prize for whoever could make this process less gross. And that prize was won by a French chemist and pharmacist named Antoine Germain Labarac. And he figured out that this chlorinated javel water not only got rid of the horrifying smell of putrefied animal, but also prevented the animal parts from breaking down by killing the bacteria that were digesting it. So this discovery is actually what led to bleach being the widely used disinfectant in hospitals, restaurants, and other areas that we know it as today. I guess depending on how you look at it, we owe one of our most powerful disinfectants to the fact that we used to make musical instruments out of dead animals. Wow, I don't really know what to make of that. Honestly, me neither, Toxo. But let's take a jump forward about 100 years to World War I. It's 1915, and the Germans need something to keep the Allied troops at bay. A German chemist named Fritz Haber, who incidentally was also the inventor of hydrogen cyanide gas that was used in World War II gas chambers, and won the 1918 Nobel Prize for helping find a way to make artificial fertilizer, informed the Ministry of War about this gas that was green and yellow and denser than air at room temperature, so it would sink into the trenches of war when it was released. It had the potential to incapacitate thousands. This was chlorine gas. It was released on a group of Allied soldiers in Belgium on April 22, 1915, and resulted in nearly 15,000 casualties and 5,000 deaths. Here's an excerpt from a British soldier who unfortunately witnessed the tragic events of that day. I watched figures running wildly in confusion over the fields. Greenish-gray clouds swept down upon them, turning yellow as they traveled over the country, blasting everything they touched and shriveling up the vegetation. Then there staggered into our mist French soldiers, blinded, coughing, chests heaving, faces in ugly purple color, lips speechless with agony. Truly a tragic day. So why were they coughing and choking with red eyes and mouth? How does chlorine gas impart its toxicity? Remember how the inventor of bleach bubbled chlorine gas through water and it generated hydrochloric and hypochlorous acid? Well, if you release chlorine gas in the air, it does the same thing when it contacts moist, water-filled mucous membranes on our body. That's your eyes, your nose, upper airways, it quickly dissolves into hydrochloric acid, the same acid that we use to digest food or clean pools. A highly corrosive and powerful acid, damaging proteins and membranes on cells, causing what's called a coagulative necrosis and a chemical pneumonitis. I actually remember the first group of patients I saw with chlorine gas exposure. It was a young group of three friends who were cleaning and accidentally mixed chlorine bleach with an acid in their shed. They noticed some stinging and burning of the eyes and nostrils initially, but they stayed and kept cleaning. By the time they called 911, it was almost too late. Their eyes, mouth, and nose, all their moist mucous membranes were red, inflamed, and edematitous, all swollen with fluid leaking out of them. And they appeared to be in significant respiratory distress, really using all accessory muscles to breathe. The initial presentation of these patients is frequently very extreme. Fortunately, with good supportive care, we can usually turn it around. Maybe now is a good time to talk about the treatment principles of toxicology. 
So what do we do for these patients when they show up in the emergency department? In general, when treating a patient with a toxic exposure, there's four key pillars that we try to address. Decontaminating the patient, providing supportive cares, reversing toxicity if able, and enhancing the elimination of the toxin. The first is decontamination. Can we get the toxin away from the patient to prevent any further harm from developing? Fortunately for chlorine gas, all we need to do is get them away from the gas. So if they made this in their home or their bathroom or a shed, getting them outside to fresh air. And if they can, opening windows and turning fans on, blowing outward so the gas isn't concentrating in one specific place. Of course, if you're breathing in chlorine gas, it's pretty hard to keep it out of your eyes or nose or off your skin. So if there's irritation, we'll often have to irrigate those areas to prevent any further damage. Also, keep in mind that your clothing are getting soiled as well, so getting out of any contaminating clothes into some fresh duds is a good idea. The second pillar is supportive care. These are interventions we do to maintain our basic vital functions of breathing, oxygenating, and pumping blood. In terms of chlorine gas, we can do interventions to try to increase the ability for oxygen to get across the lungs and to maintain an open airway. So sometimes we need to intubate, meaning putting a breathing tube in. We can also use medicines to open up the airways and let oxygen flow through the lungs easier. These are called bronchodilators. An example is albuterol, and it's the same medicine we use in asthma exacerbations. And we can increase the oxygen levels in the air using supplemental oxygen. There's not a lot of role for other things like steroids or antibiotics that have been shown with any evidence. The next pillar is reversing toxicity. If you're able to reverse toxicity, you should. Unfortunately, there's only about 50 antidotes in the entire world, and there are millions, if not infinite, toxins. So 99.999% of toxicology is good supportive care. The real hard stuff comes in with making decisions around anecdotal use and enhancing elimination. There's no antidote that reverses toxicity of chlorine gas. However, we can target our fourth pillar, which is to enhance elimination. We could, in theory, have them inhale a base which would neutralize the hydrochloric acid that's been made in the lungs. When the hydrochloric acid combines with the base, it'll make inert compounds like water, sodium chloride, and carbon dioxide. We do this by nebulizing sodium bicarbonate, a liquid form of the same thing that's in baking soda. And we put it in a special machine called a nebulizer that aerosolizes it so it can be breathed in. There is very sparse literature to support this anecdotal therapy. And this is somewhat unique because if you have an acid burn on your skin or in your mouth, we don't generally try to neutralize it. The prevailing theory being that neutralizing an acid with a base is an exothermic or heat-producing reaction, and you could add a thermal injury to a chemical burn. Generally, to treat acid or base burns on the skin, the solution for pollution is dilution. We do copious water irrigation, diluting out the acid or base until the pH is low enough that it won't burn. We'll even test the wound with a pH strip so we know when to stop irrigating it. The reason this is believed to be safe in lung injury is because the lungs have a large enough surface area that they can generally dissipate any heat created by the reaction of hydrochloric acid and sodium bicarb. So we have an antidote, but it's no miracle. There's not a lot of good trials to support it, and the only thing it's really been shown to do is make lung function tests look better. 
Outcomes like making you feel better or leaving the hospital earlier or not dying doesn't really have the data to support that it affects that. And frequently, people do not know what chemicals they've mixed together. Depending on what you mix bleach with, you actually get different types of gases. For instance, when you mix it with ammonia, you get chloramine gas. Chloramine gas dissolves in the mucous membrane and creates many different highly irritating oxidant compounds like ammonia and free oxygen alongside hydrochloric and hypochlorous acid. We don't really know that nebulizing sodium bicarbonate would have any effect on those oxidizing compounds. And the very little literature that we do have in using bicarbonate for chloramine exposures doesn't support any benefit. Quick side note, the reason that pools have that strong chlorine smell is not from chlorine itself, but from ammonia combining with chlorine to make chloramine. The main source of ammonia in pools is from people sweat and people urine. So if it's a very strong smelling pool, maybe stay out of the kids section. Okay, back to treating chlorine gas. The mainstay of treatment for these patients, just like most toxicology patients, is excellent supportive cares. Those three patients that needed treatment after making chlorine gas in their shed all received oxygen, bronchodilating medications, and even nebulized sodium bicarbonate to try to neutralize any acid in the lungs. One of them still required a breathing tube and had to be admitted to the hospital, but the others improved after a few hours of observation and good supportive care and were able to be discharged home. See, many people who are exposed to chlorine gas notice it right away, and they're able to get themselves away from the exposure before it causes too much damage. This is a benefit of these class of agents called high or intermediate solubility irritants. This includes gases like the high solubility chloramine and the intermediate solubility chlorine gas. They quickly dissolve in the mucous membrane and do their damage up front, giving us a warning sign to get out of there. This is in contrast to low-solubility irritant gases. An example of a low-solubility gas would be phosgene gas, one of the most lethal war gases used in World War I. They don't dissolve in the mucous membrane right away, so despite being exposed to it, there's no signal to leave, and you'll continue to breathe in this toxic substance, which will slowly dissolve and begin to exert its effect many hours later. Because of this, you have much more prolonged exposures and generally get exposed to a much larger dose. These compounds are more likely to cause lower lung injuries, and because of a higher dose of exposure, more severe lung pathology. High solubility agents can be just as bad if you're unable to get away from the exposure. Incarcerated exposures where you're, say, trapped in a locked bathroom with chlorine gas being generated, you may get exposed to the same dose as you would with low solubility. And we can see lower respiratory issues and things like acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is more difficult to treat and doesn't have the best prognosis. In the end, it all comes down to the dose, just like any poison. In fact, this is why children are more likely to be susceptible to the toxic effects of gases, because they breathe faster than adults. They're exchanging more gas relative to their body surface area than the adult is and getting exposed to a higher relative dose. So important questions to ask to help figure out how a patient will do is how long were they exposed to the gas? Was it in a well-ventilated area or in a smaller area? Or was it high concentrations like an industrial spill? There's no magic number that will tell us who will do well and who won't, but someone who noticed symptoms right away and was able to get themselves away from the exposure may do better than someone who was in a poorly ventilated area exposed to a high concentration or for a long duration. 
Other helpful questions are what exactly were the products they were using so we can figure out what they made. We would assume that the case in the beginning involved some form of bleach mixed with an acid because it generated chlorine gas based off of the clinical symptoms and the yellowish color of the gas produced, though it also could have been liquid chlorine for pool cleaning. So bleach or liquid chlorine, when combined with an acid like vinegar, create chlorine gas. But when you mix bleach with other substances, you can create a variety of gases. As we mentioned earlier, bleach and ammonia create chloramine gas. This is usually a colorless gas, though it can have a yellow hue, and it acts just like chlorine as it's a high-solubility irritant. When you mix bleach and rubbing alcohol, you can get chloroform, which is an anesthetic. And some might think that bleach and soap is okay, but there's data to support that this can actually generate carbon tetrachloride, a nasty compound that can cause damage to the liver as well as cancer. In 2018, nearly 5,000 people called poison centers throughout the United States because they accidentally made chlorine or chloramine gas from mixing bleach with either an acid like vinegar or something like ammonia. And a thousand of them, or about one out of every five, ended up getting treated in a hospital. I know this almost never happens on purpose. I've had people mix bleach together with vinegar in their laundry or not think about it and mix two chemicals together in a bucket. If this does happen to you, if you think you've made one of these compounds and you notice that your eyes are stinging or your nose is stinging or you're having trouble breathing or you're just concerned that maybe you accidentally mixed the wrong chemicals, I want you to get out of there. Open windows if you can, but get to fresh air right away and call your local poison center, 1-800-222-1222. They will guide you on what to do next, like ventilating your home and assessing your symptoms to see if you need medical treatment. Okay. Next, I want to address this myth that's been going around about drinking bleach to prevent coronavirus. This is pretty simple. Remember, disinfectants are for inanimate objects. That's hard, non-porous surfaces. You are soft and porous. Bleach is not for you. But Ryan, what about me? I have hard, non-porous surfaces. I mean like shelves or tables, Toxo. So that's all you see me as. A shelf or a table. I thought being a co-host used to mean something. Toxo, you are not helping right now. So let's go back to the invention of bleach. Our chemist was bubbling chlorine gas through the water, and in order to trap it in there, he had to add some base. A lot of base. Bleach in its liquid form is extremely basic. Normal household bleach might be around 5% sodium hypochlorite. That's a pH of 11. That's an 11 on a logarithmic scale of 14. Compounds with a pH greater than 7 are basic. A pH of 11 is 10,000 times more basic than a pH of 7, or twice as basic as my friend Stacy. Toxo, jealousy is not a good look for you. But yes, that is a very basic pH. Some reviews have suggested that the most extreme injuries occur with pHs greater than 12. But many things like time of contact and volume ingested also contribute to likelihood of injury. So any significantly basic compound poses a risk of serious harm, which is concerning because our most dilute bleach is starting around a pH of 11 and it only goes up from there. So what happens when you combine a base with living tissue? Well, here's a clue. This might be a little graphic, so just a warning for some listeners. Let's say you have an animal carcass, such as roadkill, and you need to dispose of it. 
We use bases for their tissue digestion properties. They take the carcass, place it in a sealed chamber, and add a mixture of sodium hydroxide and water, and this eventually turns the body into a liquid with coffee-like appearance, and the only solid that remains are bone hulls, which could be crushed with your fingertips. It's this property that's made it such a desirable agent for crime syndicates or serial killers who have used this method in the past to get rid of unwanted evidence. So how does it actually exert this toxic effect? Let's take a step back for a minute. Do you ever wonder how soap works? Well, it lets us dissolve the oils and fats on our skin in water so we can wash them away. Normally, fats and oils don't dissolve in water. Oil and water don't mix, right? That's because fatty compounds are hydrophobic, meaning they don't like water and they only dissolve in other fats. Soap works by being a two-part molecule. It has a fatty, hydrophobic tail that can dissolve fat molecules and a charged, polar, hydrophilic, meaning water-loving, head that will dissolve in water. So the tail dissolves fats and then the head gets dissolved in water and you can take the whole molecule away. You actually make soap by combining a base with fat and you get the polar base head and the fatty acid tail. Every cell in your body is lined with something called a phospholipid bilayer. It's a fatty layer that keeps water from entering into the cell. So when the charged water-loving hydroxide ion from a base comes into contact with the fatty phospholipid bilayer on a cell membrane, it will attack that fat layer and make the cell membrane dissolvable. It emulsifies and dissolves the cell membrane. Chewing through the cells, denaturing proteins on the way, any fat that it touches, it saponifies or turns it into soap and allows it to be dissolved into liquid. And this is why we get what's called a liquefactive necrosis with base burns. It is capable of causing much deeper burns than the coagulative necrosis that is caused from acid injuries because this liquefies any tissues that it's touching. There's actually a pretty iconic scene in the movie Fight Club where Brad Pitt puts some lye or sodium hydroxide on Edward Norton's skin and it immediately starts dissolving all the tissue on his hand. So if you swallow bleach, this liquefactive necrosis and saponification of tissue can occur in your mouth, your esophagus, in your lungs if you aspirate it. It can cause extremely devastating burns and impair your ability to eat normally for the rest of your life, assuming you survive. It's a pretty common household product, so a lot of people bump into this stuff. Some might get it on their skin, or kiddos might take accidental sips of it if it's left out. In 2018, there was nearly 35,000 calls to U.S. poison centers for bleach exposures. Now, not all of them ended up with melted esophaguses or severe base burns. The likelihood of severe damage is dependent on a few things like we mentioned. Not just pH, which does matter, but also how much of a gulp did they get? Did they drink a pint of it, or was it just a sip or a taste? Did any of it get into their lungs, and how long was it in contact with the mouth, esophagus, or skin? So, if it's a diluted home product and only a small quantity is consumed, like a pediatric exploratory lick or taste, we may be dealing with more minor injury, like oral irritation. Not no injury, but not severe esophagus melting injury. But we never really know. So you should always call your local poison center. 
if there's been an exposure. 1-800-222-1222. And they can provide initial treatment recommendations as well as assess if likelihood of severe injury is there. And intentional ingestions or high concentration products or large volumes of ingestion can easily lead to more severe outcomes. Okay, that's all I had for you today. Let's do a quick summary of what we talked about. Remember, mixing cleaners does not make them more effective, and things like bleach and other cleaners can produce dangerous gases. If you're exposed, get to fresh air right away and call your local poison center for further help. If you're a provider treating a chlorine gas exposure, they tend to present looking pretty bad. We can turn it around with the mainstays of therapy, which are supportive cares, with correction of hypoxemia and maintenance of a patent airway as well as bronchodilators. Sodium bicarbonate might play a role if we know they're exposed to chlorine gas. We didn't talk about it too much in the show, but there is not strong evidence to support the use of anti-inflammatory steroids or, without signs of infection, the use of antibiotics. You can find a very brief summary on the use of anti-inflammatory steroids for irritant gases in the show notes. I'd highly recommend reaching out to your local poison center for advice on when to use certain treatment modalities, patient disposition, and anecdotal therapies. When someone's presenting with injury from an irritant gas, good questions to ask are what were the names of the exact products they used to create the gas, how long were they exposed for, and was the area well ventilated? Drinking bleach will not kill the coronavirus, but it can kill you. You can use bleach on hard surfaces, but it shouldn't be used on any living organism. Wash your hands well, don't touch your face, and use hand sanitizer if you don't have soap and water available. The CDC recommends greater than 60% alcohol for hand sanitizer, and you can find a full list of EPA-approved disinfectants on the CDC coronavirus website. Wow, we really covered a lot there, Toxo. Did we forget anything? What about our social media? I keep telling you, Toxo, you got to stay off Facebook. It doesn't make you happy. But you're right. We should tell people where they can find the episodes of this show. You can find all of our episodes wherever you're listening to podcasts. Every episode is also listed with full show notes at thepoisonlab.com. There, you can also find links to free medical education games and lectures that Toxo and I have put together for you. There's also links to free toxicology learning resources and other great Tox podcasts. If this was your first episode and you want to know more about what a toxicologist is, what poisons are, or why we're making this show, check out our prequel episode, which is online now. Don't forget to follow Toxo at Lab Poison on Twitter and myself at EM Poison Farm D. And we have an Instagram at Tox underscore Talk, T-A-L-K. Lastly, make sure you write this email address down, ToxTalk1 at gmail.com. So I'm about to play the intro to our next episode. If you think you might have an idea of what poison we're dealing with, or even if you don't and you want to venture a guess, I want you to write in to talkstalk1 at gmail.com. Let me know what you think and maybe why you think it's that, or whatever you feel like sharing with us. And we'll read some responses on the show during the start of the next episode. All right, Toxo, can you play the intro? A 30-year-old male presents to the emergency department complaining of one month of abdominal pain, nausea, constipation, lower extremity weakness, and weight loss. It all started after a car accident about one month ago. He has a past medical history of high blood pressure, diabetes, and a gunshot wound to the right lower extremity 10 years ago. He was recently hospitalized for two and a half weeks for the same symptoms, but the workup was inconclusive. He lives at home with his family and works as a cleaner. Today, in the emergency department, 
He has yellowing of the eyes, scleral icterus, an elevated total bilirubin level, and a very low hemoglobin level. It's determined he has hemolytic anemia. A peripheral blood smear is done that shows basophilic stippling, which eventually led us to the final diagnosis. So there's your case for the next episode. If you think you know what's going on, or maybe you don't, you want to take a guess, or maybe you actually want to correct something you heard on the podcast today, send us an email at talkstalk1 at gmail.com. We'll include responses to the case in the beginning of the next show. If you don't want your answer read or you want to be anonymous, that's fine too. Just put it in your email. Otherwise, I hope you learned something useful today, and maybe we cleared up some confusion surrounding chlorine gas, cleaners, and coronavirus. Thanks everyone for listening. Tune in to the next episode. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. Remember, please don't drink the javel water. See you next time, goodbye.